Have you ever tried to motivate your kids to clean up? Especially when they're younger, right? You pull out every stop you've got. You just want to motivate them, get them working, whatever. And you, you talk to them about the privilege that it is of being in the family. And hey, we've got responsibilities because you're in this family. The importance of honoring mom and dad. So, hey, you got to get to work. And hey, it's good to take good care of your stuff. And so you just get, you got you to gotta keep good good care of your stuff and it's nice to make things just look nice and clean and you try to motivate that you do whatever works and then you just give up and say you just got to do it right and they do eventually you get them going and they work and they and they do as best they can and they, they clean up and the only problem is that they can't do it just right you know they, they fold the clothes as best they can and they put them away the best they can but they're not really folded just great and they're kind of hanging out of the drawers a little bit and there's some stuff that they just don't know quite what to do with. And so they just make a pile and put it in the corner or slide it under their bed or something. And they make up their bed, but, you know, it's not hospital corners, you know. It's just as best they can do. And it's okay, but it's not perfect. And so then when they go to sleep, what happens? Mom comes behind and she does for them what they really can't do for themselves. And sometimes, sometimes we can have this misconception that that's how God works with us. That we work as hard as we can and we try to live life just as good as we can and we clean ourselves up as best as we can and then we present ourselves to God and say, God, can you fix me from here? This is as best as I can do. Can you take over from here? That, that totally misses God's grace. Because the reality is we can't clean ourselves up. That, that our best, it, it amounts to filthy rags. Our, God takes us dirty and stained. He takes us dead in our sin. And he washes us through his blood and, and in the sacrifice of his son. And he creates a new life in us. And he empowers us to live for his glory. And all of it is completely unearned, it's completely unmerited, it's all grace. It's all grace. He did it all. And as we continue in our, in our series on what happens when a fairy tale comes true, it's possible to read the book of Ruth and to see this unfolding drama play out. And as we get to chapter 2, to look at it and to think, well, you know, on some level, Ruth really just deserves this. She deserves a man like Boaz to come and to, to love her and to redeem her. She, she looked after Ruth. She was so, or Naomi, she was so good to her mother-in-law. She's been such a good person. On some level, she deserves this. I mean, of course she would end up in the fields of Boaz. Of course he would take notice of her. Of course he would treat her so kindly because she deserves it. The truth is Ruth doesn't deserve any of the favor that Boaz shows her. She's an outsider, she's a foreigner, a former idolater, now worshiper of the one true God. She's a widow, she's a destitute woman. She has nothing to offer Boaz except gratitude. The love that Boaz extends to Ruth reveals the richness of God's grace, a grace that's completely undeserved, completely unmerited. See, God's grace is him condescending to us, not because we deserve it or because he's obligated to, but because he is good and he is gracious. This morning, as we study through the rest of this scene here in chapter 2, we're just going to ask the question, well, how does grace work? 
How does grace work? So we'll continue in the story of Ruth. Uh, Our passage this morning is chapter 2, verses 14 through 23. Ruth chapter 2, verses 14 through 23. Last week, we saw that first encounter of Ruth and Boaz. We, we watched this meeting unfold as Boaz demonstrated this love and kindness toward Ruth. And at this point in the story, anticipation is building. The hope begins to infuse the heart that perhaps just maybe Boaz has taken a liking to Ruth, that he will be the one who will protect her. Just maybe Boaz will desire this foreign Moabite widow to be his. And so we hope that he would redeem her, he'll provide for her, he'll protect her. And as we jump back into the story, there's this hope that love is in the air. So we'll pick it up. It's really the second half of the scene that we began last week. Ruth chapter 2, we'll begin verses 14 through 16. It says, at mealtime, Boaz said to Ruth, come here and eat some bread and dip your morsel in the wine. So she sat beside the reapers, and he passed to her roasted grain. And she ate until she was satisfied, and she had some left over. When she rose to glean, Boaz instructed his young men, saying, Let her glean among the sheaves, and do not reproach her. Also, pull out some from the bundles for her, and just leave it for her to glean, and do not rebuke her. You remember... Last week when boy meets girl, when Boaz meets Ruth, and he, he hears about her story, he inquires about her, he says, tell me, tell me about her. And he hears about her, and then he goes and he approaches Ruth, and he's thought of every reason why Ruth needs to stay in his field and not go anywhere else. You just stay right here. Everything you need is in my field. You don't need to go to another field. In fact, you don't even need to go to the town to get water. You just drink from the water that I've got set aside for my employees. You can just stay right here. No need to go anywhere, and no one's going to touch you. No one's going to harm you. No one's going to get in your way. He's got, he's got it all figured out. Well, now, as Ruth hears this and she sees what's happening, she just falls at Boaz's feet. She's amazed at what Boaz is doing. She couldn't understand it. I mean, face to the ground, asking why? Why, why would you treat me, a foreigner, like this? Why, why would you show this kind of kindness to me? It doesn't make any sense. And now it's mealtime, and Ruth is about to be amazed all over again because Boaz approaches her. And he asks her to come eat with him. It's not like he just sent her some food. He says, hey, come, eat, eat with me, eat with my employees. I've, I've got some food for you. See, this, this implies, too, that Ruth, when she set out to glean, that she didn't have anything with her. In, in those days, oftentimes, you'd at least take a little bit of bread for the day. And you had nothing, but you'd have, you know, just a little bit. And so that would be the bread to kind of Put something in your stomach so that you can have the energy to work. She didn't even have that. So she goes out with nothing, and he says, come, eat with me, eat at my table, sit over here with me. I imagine that perhaps when they were older and Ruth and Boaz were recounting the story of how they met, that maybe they said this was the first date that he came over and he asked me to have a meal with him and the employees. It's, it's the grace of Boaz 
to Ruth because here's how grace works. Grace works by making the first move. Grace works by making the first move. See, Boaz approached her. He provided for her. He invited her to the meal. He makes the first move, and she's left stunned. She's amazed, and then she's amazed, and then she's amazed all over again because who treats people this way? Who would treat her this way? And see, this is God's grace in our lives too, that he made the first move to us. That, that with no reason, who would treat us? Who would treat sinners? Who would treat those who are enemies of God the way that he's treated us? Who would come for us? He died for us. He rose again for us. It's by grace we have been saved. Not of works, so that we would have any reason to boast about it. It's all grace. And we recognize that our salvation is not that we were somehow smarter than anybody else, not that we were somehow better than anybody else, not that we were wiser and made better decisions, more moral, not because we've earned it in any way. It's all a credit to him. It's simply God's grace. He gets all the credit. And the only natural response to a grace like that is amazement. Because who, who would treat someone like this? Who would treat you like this? Who would treat Ruth like this? And the life of the Christian is grace upon grace upon grace. And we ought to be amazed and amazed and amazed all over again. Even in heaven, you know, I I believe part of the picture in Revelation chapter 4 is the church standing before the lamb who was slain. And we get to witness before us everything that he's prepared for us, the the splendor of his preparation, the, the glory of heaven. And as we begin to grasp our eternal role as the bride of Christ, as we're there before him, He's given us crowns, and there's no other proper response but to take those crowns and throw them back at his feet and then to, to fall down before him and to speak, to sing loudly that you are worthy, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power for you created all things and by you all things were created and have their being. See, I don't have to only imagine what that day will be like. Thanks to the grace of our God, he's already told me. When Ruth was overwhelmed by the grace of Boaz, she, she, she never just flicked her hair back and said, you know, I kind of thought he'd notice me. You know? she, she, never, she, never, she wasn't walking around those fields thinking, I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get his attention for sure. No, she knew that she's got nothing to offer, that there's no reason that he should take notice of her. See, grace is only received by those who know that they don't have it all together. Grace is only received by those who realize that they're broken, that they're destitute, that they're, that they're needy people. If you think you have it all together, there's no re- reason for grace. And this is why grace is always so surprising, why it's always so astonishing, why it's always so unexpected. Because you know that we deserve a lot of things, but we know that we don't deserve this. This is grace. And maybe you're here this morning, and it's taken every bit of faith just to walk in the door, just to show up to church. Because maybe maybe you have this idea that the church is made up of perfect people. Nothing could be further from the truth. Okay? 
In fact, it's a prerequisite to be a member of the body of Christ that you must understand your brokenness. That, that to be able to experience God's grace, you must understand that you don't have it all together, that you are in desperate need of a Savior. In any moment that you think, in, in any area of your life that you think, I've got it all together here. You know, maybe I don't have everything together, but this right here, I'm never going to fall there. I mean, this, I've got control there. That's where you're most vulnerable. Because we are inconsistent people. We're imperfect people. We're unreliable people. We are in constant need of God's grace in every single area of our life. We are a completely dependent people. And if you came thinking that you've got to put on a, a pretense and that you've got to look perfect to come to church, you need to know that church is not a place for perfect people. It's a place for honest people. It's a place to be able to gather together and just to be real and to say, hey, here's where I'm struggling. Here's where I need to grow. And I need your help there. In fact, if you're going through anything in your life and you say, ah, I need someone to talk to, I'd encourage you just to grab the communication card in front of you and just let us know. Just say, hey, it'd really help if I could talk to somebody about this. And we're not a perfect people, but we know a God who is perfect. And we can take you to his word and we can show you through his word what it means to live a life of godliness. And we can be an encouragement to you and we would value you being an encouragement to us. And you can just drop that in one of the boxes as you leave or you can hand it to me. But one of the strengths of the younger generation, I think, the younger millennials, Generation Z coming up, is their desire for authenticity. I think part of it comes from this social media age in which we live. And they, they know, I mean, they know better than we do, that, that on Facebook you can create any kind of idea, any kind of identity that you want. I mean, everybody has a perfect family on Facebook. Everybody's got a perfect life on Facebook. I mean, you look at Facebook, man, they're living the life. I mean, it, you can portray whatever identity you want to. And so there's this, there's this desire in the, in the younger generation for just to be real. Can we just be authentic? Can we just be genuine? And what a privilege it is for us to be able to take them to a real, genuine, authentic God who, who he, he puts forth men and women of, of faith, and he dresses them not in robes of perfection, but in rags of humility. He invites us to see the bitterness of Naomi, the affairs and the murder of David. We, we see men like Peter, who always talked before he thought. We see a prostitute like Rahab. We, we see people who struggle with doubt like Thomas and, and Gideon. The Bible does not whitewash our heroes as other religions would do. We are allowed to see our heroes in living color with all of their blemishes, with all of their faults, because it highlights the grace of our God, that he would condescend to us. I'm so thankful that part of our wonderful ministry here at Central is the school a school that is committed to excellence scholastically, but also a school that's committed to teaching the next generation about this real, true, authentic God who showers us with his unexpected grace and then empowers students to live lives by the power of his Holy Spirit, lives that demonstrate the fruit of the Spirit. And so if you know kids who, who need a good school, I encourage you to have them talk to Mrs. Stevens and, and enroll here at, at Central. Because it's grace upon grace upon grace. How could it be that Boaz would make the first move 
and not simply send Ruth food, but go to her and invite her to come eat with him. And more than simply eat with him and his workers as well, he served her. Did did you see that? That he passed the roasted grain to her. He, He served her. You can picture Boaz, can't you, as he goes to Ruth and he says, you sit down right here. Here's some bread. You got you to eat this bread. And here's a little dipping sauce for it. It tastes so good. You, you got to dip your bread in this sauce. Oh, and here's the roasted grain. No, don't, don't just eat it plain like that. We've roasted it. It tastes so good. You've got to try some. And Ruth eats and she eats and she's full. She has some left over. See, this is another way that grace works. Grace works by assuming the role of a servant. Grace assumes the role of of a servant. Boaz, the wealthy landowner, serves Ruth. And the way it likely worked in that time, in that culture, is that Boaz would have had a skillet of roasted grain, and Ruth would have been seated on the ground, and he would have come over, and he would have knelt beside her, and he would have just scraped some of the roasted grain onto her mat, onto her lap. And I imagine as he was kneeling there, just kind of serving her and scraping some roasted grain to her, don't you wonder if their eyes met? Don't you wonder if they just exchanged a little bit of a glance? I wonder if she was blushing at this unexpected, overwhelming, spontaneous grace. And Boaz, his employees were there, and they were watching this scene. They must have been stunned to see their boss go to this gleaner, this, this servant. No, she was lower than a servant, a destitute woman, serving her, inviting her to eat with them. Ruth ate all she wanted. She excused herself from the meal, and she goes back to the fields. The text implies there that the, that the employees, they, they hung around, and they continued to talk with Boaz. Um, he instructed them some more about not getting in her way and even leaving uh, just some extra barley out in the fields for her to, her to grab. It's, it's possible that as she left, she might have been just a little embarrassed at the curious looks that might have been coming her way or maybe exchanged between the employees. Maybe there were some wondering glances in her direction, kind of wondering what in the world is going on here. But make no mistake about it, nobody eating at that meal missed this moment that Boaz the prince treated this servant girl lower than that, a destitute foreign widow, as if she were some honored guest. No one would have missed that. I mean, the prince had taken the role of a servant and provided for the hopeless. What grace! And if you know Jesus, then you know the Prince of Peace who came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. When I was in seminary living in the dorm there, and you should know that the dorm at uh, Dallas Seminary at the time was old. I mean, it had been around for a long time, and you you flush the toilet and the showers come on kind of thing. It was just... uh, some issues and part of the ceilings kind of caving in and this kind of thing. And it had been formerly a, a mental institution for women way back in the day, and they really hadn't updated it since. 
Since, since I left, though, they demolished it. Now they built like five-star accommodations. So the new guys, they're, they're pretty fortunate. But it was the single guy's dorm. And at the start of one semester, you know, it was already rough, but it got quite a bit rougher because bed bugs just kind of infested one of the halls. It was the hall I was living on, but they never quite made it to my room, thankfully. It's believed, what we kind of assume is that one of the guys had gone on a mission trip and that when he came back, we think that he just brought a bunch of bed bugs with him because they were the worst in his room and had kind of gone to the surrounding room. So we think that's where they came from. But anyway, they had to call the exterminator out to come get the bed bugs. And the first time the exterminator comes out, it was as if the bed bugs just kind of took a bath in the stuff that he was spraying and they just multiplied. So... They had to call him out again, he comes out again, and eventually they get to the bottom of it, and you know, they're able to exterminate all the bed bugs. But suppose just for a moment that I loved bed bugs, okay? That I did not want to see the exterminator come and exterminate all the bed bugs. Just assume that with me for just a moment. I mean, what could I do? Right? I mean, I could yell at the top of my lungs to the bed bugs, hey, the exterminator is coming. That wouldn't do any good. I, I, could, I could, like, spell it out in breadcrumbs or something. The exterminator is coming. I could put a neon sign in the room. I could make it just, like, glow. The exterminator is coming. None of that would do any good because they can't relate to any of that. They can't understand any of that. The only way that I could be able to tell the bed bugs that the exterminator is coming is to somehow become a bed bug myself. But who would do that? I mean, who who would give up the right to live and look like man, to live and look like a bed bug? Who who would give up the right to, to live with all of man's luxuries and all of man's accommodations to live like a bug? No, no one would do that. And what's more, what what if I knew that to do that, the only way that I could properly save the bedbugs would be to allow the bedbugs to kill me so that they could be provided for, they could be protected, they could be saved. No no, no matter how much you love bedbugs, no one would do that. And yet this is what the King of Kings and Lord of Lords has done for us. He has left the comforts of heaven for the confines of earth. He left the right to, he gave up the right to live and look like God. He he set aside those divine attributes so that he could live and look like man, so that he could experience sufferings and he can sympathize with us in our weaknesses. This is what he has done for us. He did this for a destitute, a dying world, a world that would turn on him and kill him. This is grace. This is unbelievable, unexpected grace. Grace works by making the first move and assuming the role of a servant and in serving in ways that no one would even imagine. This is the grace of our God. I want to continue the story with you in Ruth chapter 2, verses 17 through 23. So she gleaned in the field until evening, Then she beat out what she had gleaned, and it was about an ephah of barley. And she took it up and went into the city. Her mother-in-law saw what she had gleaned. She also brought out and gave her what food she had left over after being satisfied. 
And her mother-in-law said to her, where did you glean today? And where have you worked? Blessed be the man who took notice of you. So she told her mother-in-law with whom she had worked and said, the man's name with whom I work today is Boaz. And Naomi said to her daughter-in-law, may he be blessed by the Lord, whose kindness has not forsaken the living or the dead. Naomi also said to her, the man is a close relative of ours, one of our redeemers. And Ruth, the Moabite said, besides, he said to me, you shall keep close by my young men until they have finished all my harvest. And Ruth, and then Naomi said to Ruth, her daughter-in-law, it is good, my daughter, that you go out with these young women, lest in another field you be assaulted. So she kept close to the young women of Boaz, gleaning until the end of the barley and wheat harvest, and she lived with her mother-in-law. As Ruth goes back into the fields, gleaning until evening, she's working hard. I mean, Boaz, he's already kind of stacked the deck in her favor, you know. He told his employees earlier, you just leave some out there for her. Don't do your job as best you can. You know, pull some and then just drop it accidentally so that she can just come and get a lot. And she's out there working hard, and then behind the scenes, uh, Boaz has worked everything out. See, grace surprises, but then it asks you to join in. Grace gives you the opportunity to be a part of it. Part of the richness of God's grace is that God does not save us to be spectators, but he saves us to be his servants. He's not in need of our help. I mean, he could do it all his own. He's, he's completely self-sufficient. But in his grace, he has saved us into a body. He has saved us into a family. And by his Holy Spirit, he has gifted each of us uniquely so that we can be a benefit to one another. He's created us in such a way and adopted us into his family in such a way that the only way that I can fully be complete in Christ is to demonstrate my spiritual gift to you and then allow you to demonstrate your spiritual gift to me. That if I think that I can just hold myself up up in a closet and I can be complete in Christ in a closet, then I have totally missed the purpose of my salvation. Because God has saved me for good works, which he pre-planned in advance that we should walk in them. And to cut ourselves off from the body. See, this is the most important meeting that takes place on the face of the planet. There's no meeting in the Oval Office. There's no meeting of Congress. There's no assembly of the United Nations that could compare to the significance of what happens when God's people gathers together and serves the God of the universe. See, what we're doing here has eternal ramifications. It's the most important meeting that ever takes place. And we get to enjoy it every single week. And he's invited us into this family and to neglect that means to miss the purpose for which you've been saved, to never fully realize all you were created to be, to never fully experience God's grace in our lives here and now because he hasn't saved us as spectators. He saved us as servants. Ruth gets to work, and in the same way, we get to work as we experience God's grace. And we're, Ruth works hard, and he, she returns to Naomi, with about an ephah of barley, commentators, they kind of differ on just how much that was. Most uh, estimate that it's between about 25 and 50 pounds somewhere in that neighborhood. It's enough for the two women to eat 
um, for at least a week or so. And one characteristic that's often missed of Ruth is just how strong this woman was. I mean, she doesn't ask Boaz for like a donkey to carry all, the, all, all this barley back. You know, she doesn't ask for a ride back to Naomi's. I mean, she, she carries it. She lugs it into the house and, and she's gleaned more than the average person, the average reaper would collect in a day. I mean, this is the overwhelming generosity of Boaz that he would allow her to glean this kind of amount. But that's another way grace works. Grace works by giving generously. Grace works by giving generously. I mean, the, it says that Ruth gleaned until the end of the barley and wheat harvest, which would be about another seven weeks. If she gleaned about that much every single day, she would have enough for herself and Naomi to live on for the rest of the year. When she left that morning to go out and glean and to find a field somewhere, she was probably just hoping to get a little something to put in her stomach and to bring a little something back for Naomi that night. And now several weeks later, she's got enough to feed the two of them for the year. So during the dark days of the judges, when everyone was doing what was right in their own eyes, when they had forgotten who God was and what he had done for Israel, any other field owner would look at someone like Ruth and say, you got to find another field. I mean, you can't, you can't take this much from my field. This is, this is not right. You know, you're, you're a foreigner. You're, you're an immigrant. You, you need to go somewhere else. You're cutting off my revenue stream here. This isn't working out. Boaz, he stacks the deck in her favor. He, he tells his workers not even to do a good job, just to leave it out there for her. You, know, you do the work, but just leave it. Just drop it. Let her pick it up. See, this is generous giving. This is grace. It's grace upon grace. And can you imagine the scene when Ruth walks in the door that night? And there's Naomi. I mean, Naomi's probably just hoping that Ruth could make it back with a little something. And here she comes in with all of this barley and she just lugs it in there. And then she reaches into her pocket or whatever and says, oh, and by the way, here's dinner. Here's some roasted grain, some bread. And, and she shares her leftovers that she had had at that meal with Boaz. And now it's Naomi's turn to be overwhelmed, to be amazed, just as Ruth had been. And she just asked questions, where, where have you been? Where have you been working? Whose fields did you go to? Blessed be the man who took notice of you. And at this point in the story, it's interesting because Ruth knows something that Naomi doesn't know. And Naomi knows something that Ruth doesn't know. But we, the readers, we are privileged to know both things. You see, Ruth understands that she has been gleaning in the fields of Boaz. Naomi doesn't know that. Naomi knows that Boaz is a relative. Ruth doesn't know that. But we, the reader, we know both those things. And so we are sitting here in anticipation as Ruth comes home, comes back to Naomi's, and we're wanting Ruth just to tell Naomi, tell her that you were with Boaz. Tell her that that's whose fields you ended up at. You got to let her know. You got to tell her. And so, you know, Naomi's asking these questions and the narrator, he just draws it out for us. You know, he just, he just waits. He puts it at the very end, you know, and here's Ruth's response. 
You know, the name of the man with whom I worked today is, drumroll, Boaz. And then we're cheering, yes, it's Boaz. And Naomi praises God for Boaz and asks a blessing over Boaz. And she tells Ruth, he's a family member. You can feel her heart is jumping, her heart is racing because now this grace that's been demonstrated to Ruth is now overflowing on Naomi and she's excited. This woman who was bitter just a few days ago in chapter one, now she's excited and she's brimming with hope too. And she says, yeah, you keep on going. Do what Boaz said, you keep going back to his field, you keep gleaning in those fields of grace. See, it's not just Ruth who's being redeemed, Naomi's redemption has begun as well. Now, now don't think that it's over. I mean, there's hope in her heart, but in many ways, she still may be living in a place of circumstances dictating her faith. Don't think she's arrived yet. That'll come a little bit later. But grace given to one overflows to another. And that's how it works, doesn't it? Boaz demonstrates this incredible unexpected grace to Ruth, and now that grace overflows to Naomi. Naomi's redemption begins as well, but if you're to ask Naomi, why is she hopeful? Why is she excited? Why is her heart stirring and jumping and racing? It's not because of Ruth. I mean, sure, she's probably happy, you know, from Ruth's story and her testimony from the day, but the reason why Naomi is happy. The reason why she's hopeful is because of Boaz. She knows that Boaz is a relative. She knows that Boaz has demonstrated this unexpected kindness, this unbelievable favor towards Ruth. That Boaz has spoken kindly to Ruth. That Boaz has noticed Ruth. And and so the grace that overflowed onto Naomi and what gives her hope is not in what Ruth can do, but in what Boaz can do. And this is the picture of the Christian life. That we don't hope in anyone or anything else. That our one hope, our sole hope, is Jesus Christ and what he has done and what he promised he will do. And when someone else receives God's grace, when someone else is a recipient of God's grace and they share their story, they share their testimony, they share their gifts, when, when, when the grace given to someone else then overflows to us, it draws us back, not to them, as much as it draws us back to our God. Because we know that he's the dispenser of grace. And so we're encouraged and our hearts jump and there's this cycle that develops. The cycle of grace and joy envelops and hope prevails because we're reminded again and again and again of God's unexpected grace, not just in our lives, but in the lives of others. I remember one time when we asked the kids to clean up. They were supposed to clean up their playroom. And they did okay. I mean, there was, there was still quite a bit to be done, but after they go to bed, Steph goes and she works hard and she just had that playroom spotless, picked up everything, put it just where it needed to go. And the next morning, the kids woke up and they they go into the playroom and they see it just spotless, just clean. And they're running around and they actually had a room to run and, and they're giggling and they're laughing and they're having so much fun 
because of the grace of a good mom. Ruth continues to glean in the fields of Boaz, in the fields of grace. And I imagine over the next seven weeks until the end of the barley and the wheat harvest that Boaz probably invited her to a couple more meal times, a few more lunches. I don't think his grace ever stopped. I think he kept on providing, kept on protecting, kept on initiating. But the harvest ended. And Ruth, she goes back and she lives with Naomi. And the narrator at the end of chapter two, he leaves us on a little bit of a cliffhanger because we're wondering, the harvest has ended, but why did Boaz just let her go? Well, why is she back with Naomi? What's going to become of Ruth? What's going to become of Naomi? Will Ruth and Boaz meet again? What, what will happen next? How will God's unexpected grace continue to show itself in this story? To see it in the lives of Ruth and Naomi, you'll have to come back next week. But to see his unexpected grace in your life today to see his faithfulness. You be faithful with what you know to do and ask for eyes to see. And as you see, it'll leave you surprised, amazed, running in the fields of grace. Heavenly Father, you are a gracious, good God. A God who would condescend to us, to meet us on our level, to provide everything for us. So God, as we have received your grace, help us be dispensers of that as you've just lavished it and it just overflows from us. When, when the world interacts with us, God, may we be the ones who initiate. May we be the ones who make the first move. You've called us to serve. Help us to serve well. Help us to give generously because we've been given everything by a good, generous, gracious God. God, we recognize that we can't do this in and of ourselves. We need your help. So we ask this by the power of your Holy Spirit and through the grace of your Son, Jesus Christ, whom we love. Amen.